out today, it's a different place, all the same with a new face, with strange mysteries hanging in the air. People in their sane minds swear they see you today. Are you looking for the love they took away? Everyone knows that you couldn't bear pain. Spine-tingling greetings to all of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those awesome tunes that you just heard are, as always, courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey, and I, of course, am your host, Tessa Morrow. Charles Hardin Holly, who we lovingly know as Buddy Holly, was born in Lubbock, Texas during the Great Depression. Buddy, along with his siblings, will they learn how to play the guitar and sing at a very young age. After he has the opportunity to open for Elvis Presley, he is extremely motivated to launch a career in music. It is something that he is obviously very passionate about. The king of rock and roll was rather fond of the young Holly, as he had Buddy open for him three different times in 1955, more specifically that being in February, April, and June. Not long before the winter dance party tour, Holly's wife Maria, who is pregnant with their only child, begins to have nightmares that leaves her in quite a state of shock. It involves seeing a fireball that is seen colliding into a field, leaving a huge crater behind. Holly himself would have an interesting dream that had to do with him being in a plane with his wife and his brother, and for reasons unknown to him, his brother convinces Buddy to drop off Maria on top of this unknown building, and they leave her there, and he promises to come back for her, but they never do. Like Maria and her dream, this one terrifies Holly. In fact, he is left feeling extremely guilty for leaving his wife behind in this ever-so-odd dream. Mind you, it was just a dream. But he felt horrible about what he had done. Then we have the grandfather of premonitions. The year before the fatal crash, back in 1958, a producer and songwriter named Joe Meek He has this tarot card reading read to him that leaves him more than just a bit stunned. He is told that Buddy Holly is going to die on the third day of February. Joe shares this disturbing news with Buddy, but at this point in 1958, you guys, the third had already gone by with no incidents, no horrible events, nothing to write home about, nothing zip nada. And by golly, guess what? He is still a breathing man. So he thanks Meek for telling him, but he just kind of takes it with a grain of salt. No one, including Buddy Holly himself, could know that the following February 3rd, he, along with several other big names in the music industry, would be snuffed out by a single plane crash. Sounds like the tarot cards were exactly right. They didn't include a year, but the date February 3rd will forever haunt many people. The Winter Dance Party Tour was something that many people were looking forward to, but unfortunately it seemed plagued with bad luck from the very beginning. 
many bad things started to happen when it comes to this particular tour. The tour buses, for one, well, guess what? They were constantly breaking down, and the heat was not working. And this was like in the dead of winter. It was very cold out. To give you an idea of just how cold it really was, without any exaggeration whatsoever, the band's drummer, Carl Bunch, he suffers from frostbite due to the ever-so-frosty conditions on that damn bus. It is because of the frostbite on his feet that ultimately forced him to quit the tour. No joke, dude got frostbite. Everybody, including Buddy Holly, is beyond sick and tired of the constant issues that keep popping up with the bus. He is so dead tired of the BS that he will actually charter a plane. Now, the thing I can't help but think is the fact that Maria Holly is supposed to be joining her husband on this tour, but she was having severe morning sickness due to the pregnancy, and he convinces her, honey, just please stay at home. Perhaps without him knowing, his dream he had earlier on about leaving his beloved bride on a building, safe, and leaving her, perhaps his conscience knew that was about to happen and left her to spare her life. He never came back, but maybe he never came back because he died, not because he abandoned her. Of course, this is just a guess of mine, but thank goodness she did not go, as we know that the drummer got frostbite. Can you imagine what could have happened to a pregnant woman? The day is February 3rd of 1959. Holly charters a plane, but it proves to be too tiny as there is not enough room for everybody. Waylon Jennings gives up his seat to the big bopper. As he was sick with the flu and flying would have been easier for the sick man. Tommy Alsup and Richie Valens, the latter who, like the big bopper, is also sick, well, they toss a coin and Richie Valens gets that fateful, deadly seat. Upon calling heads and winning, the 17-year-old Valens is so extremely beyond excited saying that this is the first time I've ever won anything. Oh, bless his heart, bless his soul. Knowing what's about to happen, that just makes this all so much more heartbreaking, in my opinion anyways. The whole thing is sad, obviously. Now, Tommy Alsup, the gentleman who lost the coin toss but won life, would later go on to open a club called the Heads Up Saloon as he chose tells, and the Heads Up indeed is what saved his life that horrible, horrible day. As they are about to part ways, Waylon Jennings makes a joke that haunts him for the rest of his life and into the grave, saying that he hopes the plane crashes. But you guess what, guys? It is in his defense. He only said it after Holly himself joked around, saying that he hopes the bus freezes. Just a joke amongst friends. I hope your bus freezes. Well, I hope your plane crashes. No one knew especially these two men, these two band members, these two dear friends, that these would be the last words exchanged to the other. February 3rd, 1959, a charter plane carrying Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Giles Perry Richardson crash. All three singers 
Well, they are ejected from the plane due to the impact. Buddy Holly, I believe, was found like 20 feet away from the crash site. This heartbreaking event is often referred to as the day the music died. Not long after the fatal plane crash, the day that music died, several of the people that are connected to Buddy Holly and the tour, well, they begin to experience things out of the ordinary. Bad things begin to happen. Many people believe this to be the Buddy Holly curse. Now, it wasn't long after her husband's death that Maria sadly miscarries their baby. They had no other children prior to this pregnancy. I can't imagine what this poor, poor woman went through. She loses the love of her life to this horrible plane crash. And then the life that her and Buddy created together. Just a piece of holly. It's taken away from her. Talk about insult to injury. Fast forward the following year after the plane crash, Eddie Cochran, well, he never forgave himself that others died when he probably should have too. He made himself believe that he was unworthy and that he had cheated death somehow. In the mid-April of 1960, Eddie and his girlfriend, the songwriter Sharon Shelley, and singer Jean Vincent, they're traveling via car to London's Heathrow Airport, where they are scheduled to fly back to the United States. En route to the airport, tragedy strikes. A tire suddenly blows, causing them to crash. Gene Vincent injures his knee. And I guess the more appropriate way to say this is that he re-injured his knee as he had hurt it earlier on due to a bad motorcycle accident. And it's because of this injury that he walks with a limp for the rest of his days. Sharon, she breaks her neck and back, and Cochran, he suffers major head injuries, and he dies the following day at age 22. Now, this is the same age that Buddy Holly was when he died. Before his death, Cochran recorded the song Three Stars, in honor and memory to the men that died that fateful day. In 1962, Ronnie Smith, the man to replace Buddy Holly for the remainder of the ever-so-cursed tour is committed to a Texas state hospital for drug abuse, and he will later commit suicide via hanging in one of the hospital's bathrooms. At the time of his death, he was only 24 years old. March 3, 1963, Buddy Holly's friend and fellow singer Lloyd Copas, better known as Cowboy Copas, Patsy Cline and Hawkshaw Hawkins perform at the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas, in tribute to Cactus Jack Call, a beloved DJ who was killed in a car accident just months earlier. Cowboy Copas, Patsy Cline, and Hawkshaw Hawkins, they hop in a Piper Comanche, and all is going fine for the flight when suddenly disaster strikes. The pilot, Randy Hughes, he suddenly loses visibility and they crash into some trees in Camden, about 70 miles give or take from Nashville, leaving no survivors. Patsy Cline, she had a close call before the plane crash took her life. A couple years earlier, back in 1961, she was involved in a really bad car accident. She was hit head on by another vehicle. 
She was thrown right into the windshield on impact. She suffers several head and facial injuries and also a broken wrist, a dislocated hip, and a rather large cut that went right across her entire forehead. Dottie West, country singer and friend of Patsy, she hears about the accident via radio while she's driving. She does not waste a millisecond. She drives right to the scene to come for her friend, helping her remove glass shards from her hair. When medical attention arrives at this car accident, Patsy insists full-heartedly, please go check on the other people in the car, make sure they're okay first. Three people were in that car, two of them would die due to their injuries. Patsy Klein thankfully made a full recovery. After waking up from surgery, Patsy tells her beloved husband, Charlie, Jesus was here, Charlie, don't worry. He took my hand and told me, no, not now. I have other things for you to do. The year after the Piper Comanche fatal crash in 1964, Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets, David Box, who was only 17 years old when he joined the band, mind you, he dies in a plane crash while in a Cessna Skyhawk 172. He, like Buddy Holly, is 22 years old. Fox, along with the other band members, Glenn Spreen and Bill Tillman, they were invited to go on a flight, joyride, if you will. Glenn and Bill, thankfully, decline. Sadly, David accepts, and we know what happens after that. It is later revealed that the pilot, Bill Daniel, did not have a federal license, and he had no business whatsoever controlling this aircraft, or any aircraft at that matter. David Box's headstone reads, I'll sing throughout eternity. In 1966, in mid-July, Bobby Fuller, who had several connections with some of the cricket songs, he is found in his car at his house, believed to have been brutally murdered. He was badly beaten. A finger on his right hand was broken. His body was soaked with gasoline. Obviously a murder, but authorities, believe it or not, they call it a suicide. Friends of Fuller shared that he had recently been threatened and harassed by the mob, including a woman who had severe ties to the mob. His death certificate says the cause of death was asphyxia and inhalation of gasoline, and it's ruled as an accident. He's 23 years old at the time of his death. In the Bobby Fuller autopsy report, it states that, quote, Bobby's face chest and side were covered in petechial hemorrhages, probably caused by gasoline vapors and the summer heat. We found no bruises, no broken bones, no cuts, no evidence of beating. That doesn't seem right at all, but whatever. Now, even though accident and suicide are checked, near them, well, there's question marks. His death was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and shortly after that episode was aired and released, it was changed from suicide to accident. Is it so hard to admit that Bobby Fuller was possibly murdered? It's like they are going out of their way, taking these detours and side roads, if you will, and completely avoiding the possibility of foul play. Come on, peeps. The year is now 1967. The day, February 3rd, eight years to the day that Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly lost their lives. Joe Meek, 
The man who, mind you, had the tarot card reading and was told that Buddy Holly was going to die on February 3rd. Well, he's going through major depression. You see, he was never the same after the fatal plane crash. It changed him to his core. And he, even at some point, says that Buddy Holly's ghost is haunting me in my dreams. Well, on the eighth year anniversary of the day that the music died, my friends, Joe Meek murders his landlady and then turns the gun on himself. Meek was obsessed with communicating with the dead. He would even set up tape recording machines throughout local burial grounds overnight in deep hopes of catching disembodied voices. And guess what, you guys? At times, he would. He shared that Buddy Holly was coming to him and speaking from beyond the grave. He began to unravel, becoming rather unstable. He felt in his heart that his flat was being haunted by poltergeist activity. He often would tell people that aliens were taking over his mind and body, and he unfortunately was suffering from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Joe Meek was beyond paranoid, and he begins throwing accusations towards his landlady, soon-to-be victim, Violet Shenton. He believes that Violet is eavesdropping on his phone calls and altogether his life by listening in from, believe it or not, the chimney. Due to heavy drug abuse, he would become rather violent at times, and oftentimes it just would come out of nowhere. So random. He was a loose cannon. Hate to say it, but he was. One time he held a gun to the Jimi Hendrix Experience drummer Mitch Mitchell. His motive behind this was that he thought in his unstable mind, this was motivation and inspiration for the drummer to conduct a high-quality performance. Dude's probably thinking this is going to be my last performance. Oh my God, I'm going to die. Joe, he was a gay man in the United Kingdom during a time when it was basically considered illegal. And when Bernard Michael Oliver, a fellow gay man, is found to be brutally murdered and dismembered and placed into suitcases dubbed as the Taddingstone Suitcase Murder in January of 1967, Well, authorities, they begin to question all the gay men that are in the area. For some reason, this terrified Joe. And to no end. Like, if you're innocent, okay, fine, question me. I am nothing to freaking hide, nothing at all. But he was already unstable. He's schizophrenic. He's bipolar. He's beginning to unravel, and he hits rock bottom, you guys. He, along with several other men, they are considered suspects in the suitcase murder. To this day, Oliver's murder remains unsolved. Very, very sad. Hate when that happens. February 3rd, Landlady Violet and soon-to-be murderer Joe, they are in the middle of a heated argument. Violet, she is sick and tired and completely fed up with all the crazy loud amounts of noise that is coming from Joe's flat. Like, enough is enough. Seriously, dude. Shut it. And if this isn't bad enough, He still owes her that rent money. Dude ain't paying. He shouldn't be living there. He grabs a single barrel shotgun, which he had, mind you, stolen from the Tornado's bassist, Heinz Burt, and he shoots Violet, and then he kills himself. In 1972, Clyde McFadder, 
who had performed with the Crickets back in 1958. He dies of kidney, heart, and liver failure. Dies in his sleep at age 39. His fame did not last long, and he completely blames his failed career on his fans, mind you, the people who supported him and listened to him. He became who he was because of them. He truly believed that they had betrayed him, and he was even quoted saying, I have no fans. It's really too bad that he had such a bad opinion about himself, because eight years after his death, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Guess those fans weren't so bad after all, right? The following year, 1973, Bobby Darren, who had performed at times with the Crickets, he dies due to complications from heart surgery. Now, you guys, this surgery was something that he desperately needed to repair a faulty valve. He was only 37 years old. Still in 1973, actually, folk singer Phil Ox. He records a tribute to his friend Buddy Holly on his final album, Gunfight at Carnegie Hall. Very soon after the tribute is released, he is brutally attacked and strangled, in which his vocal cords are damaged because of the attack. He becomes extremely depressed. Totally understandable in that situation, anybody would. And in 1976, he commits suicide by hanging at the time of his death. He is 36 years old. I'm seeing a pattern here. A lot of people are 20s, 30s. Everybody is dying so extremely young. The year before Phil's death, in mid-1975, he's clearly not himself. He goes on these drunk rants, telling everybody and their mama who will listen that KFC's Colonel Sanders manages his career. Must have been a finger-licking good career. He then begins to refer to himself as John Butler Train telling everybody that John Butler had murdered Phil, that being himself, and that John had replaced Phil. He had managed to convince himself that somebody, well, they were out to get him. Clearly, he was not in the right state of mind, and he absolutely, no ounce of doubt, needed help. His brother is desperately trying to attempt to get him committed. Eventually, he becomes penniless, and he's living out on the streets. He's a young man. He's just in his 30s. He then begins to talk about suicide. A biographer wrote this when it comes to the young man, and it seems like he nailed it pretty good. By Phil's thinking, he had died a long time ago. He had died politically in Chicago in 1968 in the violence of the Democratic National Convention. He had died professionally in Africa a few years later when he had been strangled and felt that he could no longer sing. He had died spiritually when Chile had been overthrown and his friend Victor Hara had been brutally murdered. And finally, he had died psychologically at the hands of John Train. You know, he said earlier that he felt like somebody was out to get him, that somebody was trying to kill him. Well, it was true, but it was himself. In 1977, the Buddy Holly story is released. Gary Busey, who was in the movie, is involved in a motorcycle crash. This accident almost claims his life. Meanwhile, Robert Gittler, the screenwriter for the movie, he commits suicide two days before the film's release. That same year, Mark Bolin, he dies in a car accident. Among the crash 
debris is a pen of his that reads, Every day is a holiday. And he was only 29 years old at the time of his death. In 1978, it's the sixth day of September, the Who drummer Keith Moon goes to see the Buddy Holly movie. The following day, on September 7th, he dies due to a prescription drug overdose. Guess what, you guys? Buddy Holly was born on September 7th. He died on his birthday. He dies in the same flat that Mama Cassie Elliott died in just four years earlier. It is said that he woke up around 7.30 in the morning, but he goes back to sleep. Close to 4 p.m., somebody goes to check on him, and he is found to be unresponsive. He ended up taking 32 pills of clomethazyl, a pill that is prescribed for alcohol withdrawals. That same year, Johnny O'Keefe, better known as the Australian king of rock and roll, who had worked with Buddy Holly back in 58, just the year before he died, he dies himself from a fatal heart attack, triggered by an accidental overdose from prescription meds. Johnny, he had close calls prior to this death. In 1960, he crashes his car, suffering facial lacerations and a concussion. The following year, in 1961 and 1962, actually, he suffers from nervous breakdowns and finds himself hospitalized because of it. In 1981, Bill Haley suffers a fatal heart attack. He had opened for Buddy Holly back in Texas in 1955. The year is now 1985, and this proved to be quite a fatal year as well. Bill Pickering, a singer who had worked personally with Buddy Holly, was very dear friends with him and his wife Maria, and even sings at Holly's funeral while he dies from an aneurysm. Over 10 years before his death, dating back in 1974, Bill suffers from a stroke. The stroke would leave the singer blind for two whole years. Like, oh my God, I can't even imagine. Still here, you guys, in 1985, Richard Nelson. He was a man who was terrified of flying, but he was unhappy with the long, drawn-out travels via slow bus that he and his band endured, so he looks his fear straight in the eye and faces it head-on. He buys what will soon be considered the doomed plane for $118,000 in May of 1985. Before the year is over, he will be dead. This plane once belonged to Jerry Lee Lewis. You see, this plane, it was plagued with mechanical problems. One right after another would present itself. Well, let's fast forward. Day after Christmas. It's December 26th. Everyone's still feeling festive and holiday-like. Singer Rick Nelson and his band had just performed in Alabama the night before on good old Christmas Day of 1985. The final recording of his was Buddy Holly's True Love Ways. Tragedy strikes when the plane has to make an emergency landing after the pilot had detected smoke in the cockpit. The landing, it goes okay, believe it or not. Everybody survives this. But tragedy strikes again and the plane burst right into flames. Out of the nine people on the plane, only two, that being the pilot and co-pilot, they survive. Nine people, seven deaths, two survivors, one destroyed plane. Among the dead was Ricky Nelson, his fiancée, Helen Blair, the sound tech, Donald Russell, 
Nelson's backing band, known as the Stone Canyon Band, which consisted of Andy Chapin, Rick Entfeld, Bobby Neal, and Patrick Woodward. The National Transportation Safety Board report shows that seven fatal, two seriously injured, and it reads this. At 1708 hours, while cruising at 6,000 feet, a pilot of N711Y advised ATC, quote, I think I'd like to turn around, head for Texarkana here. I've got a little problem, unquote. He was provided a vector and advised of closest airports. Shortly after, he stated he would be unable to reach those airports. At 1711, he said there was smoke in the cockpit while landing in a field at 1714. The aircraft hit wires and a pole then continued into trees, where it was extensively damaged by impact on fire. The crew egressed through the cockpit windows. The passengers did not escape. During flight, the crew was unable to start the cabin heater, despite repeated attempts by the captain. Smoke then entered the cabin. Fresh air vents and cockpit windows were opened, but smoke became dense. The crew had difficulty seeing. The oxygen system and handheld fire extinguishers were not used. Fasteners for the heater door were found unfastened. Examination indicated the fire originated in the aft cabin area, right-hand side or near the floor line. The ignition and fuel sources were not determined. Unquote. Again, seven lives were claimed due to this fiery plane crash. Extremely heartbreaking. The curse continues into the 90s. It is now the third day of February at 1990. Guess what, you guys? That's 31 years to the day that Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper died. Del Shannon plays a tribute concert in memory of Buddy Holly in Iowa. He commits suicide less than a week later, shooting himself with a 22 caliber rifle in his Santa Clarita home. The following year, in 1991, the guitarist and singer for the band The Small Faces, Steve Marriott, records the cover of Buddy Holly's song Heartbeat back in 1969. Steve was a longtime fan of Buddy Holly. Sadly, he will fall asleep with a cigarette that is still lit and he dies due to smoke inhalation. Earlier that night, he had dinner at a friend's house with his wife. And uh, let's just say they had a pretty good time because besides smoke inhalation, they found alcohol, Valium, and cocaine in his system. In 2011, Weezer's bassist, Michael Welsh, he has a nervous breakdown. He leaves the band and he is found dead under mysterious circumstances in his hotel room. One of their hit songs was called Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. They may have died February 3rd, 1959, but they remain in people's hearts and lives and they live through their music to this very day. There are several different types of memorials and tributes. One being at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, the location of their final concert. A memorial monument reads this. Richie Valance, Buddy Holly, J.D. Richardson, Big Bopper, in memory of rock and roll legends, pilot Roger Peterson, 
The above legends played their last concert at the Surf Ballroom, Clear Lake, Iowa, on February 2, 1959. Their earthly life tragically ended in a plane crash 5.2 miles northwest of the Mason City Airport, February 3, 1959. Their music lives on. Donated by Daryl R. Hine and Family MGR Surf Ballroom. But February made me shiver. With every paper I deliver. Don McLean's extremely well-known ballad, American Pie, was inspired by Holly, Richie, and Big Bopper's untimely deaths. And the plane crash that took them far, far too soon. Don wrote this regarding Holly. Quote, Buddy Holly would have the same stature musically whether he would have lived or died because of his accomplishments. By the time he was 22 years old, he had recorded some 50 tracks, most of which he had written himself. In my view, and the view of many others, a hit. Buddy Holly and the Crickets were the template for all the rock bands that followed. So, you know, part of the song, but February made me shiver. With every paper I deliver, bad news on the doorstep, I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day the music died. The day the music died. Don McLean was not kidding when he said several musicians looked up to Buddy Holly. January 31st of 1959, just Two days before Holly's untimely death, Holly is performing at Duluth, Minnesota. In attendance is a 17-year-old young man named Bob Dylan. Quote, When I was 16 or 17 years old, I went to see Buddy Holly play at Duluth National Guard Armory, and I was three feet away from him, and he looked at me. And I just have some sort of feeling that he was with us all the time we were making this record in some kind of way. Unquote. Mick Jagger, he watched Holly perform one time in London and was touched by one of his songs, specifically Not Fade Away. Not only did the song inspire Jagger, but it also inspired Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, who said, quote, Holly passed it on via the Beatles and via the Rolling Stones. He is in everybody, unquote. Paul McCartney and John Lennon, they shared that Holly was one of their main influences for their music as well. In fact, Lennon's band, The Quarry Man, covered That'll Be the Day during their very first recording session in 1958, the year before Holly's death. Gone too soon, but never forgotten. During this episode, suicide was discussed a lot. The Buddy Holly curse was plagued with several deaths, murders, accidents, several suicides. If you or someone you know is dealing with depression or suicidal tendencies, thoughts, or feelings, please know that you are not alone. Please reach out to somebody, whether it be a loved one or if you want to stay anonymous, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that number is 
273-8255. This week's special city shoutouts go to Burdwan, India, Westport, Connecticut, Lynn, Massachusetts, Kamloops, Canada, and Bolingbrook, Illinois. As always, everybody, it is just extremely appreciated. Thank you so much for listening. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They're equally awesome. Haven't heard every single damn one yet? How dare you? (laughs) Just kidding. No need to fret. You could head on over to any of those awesome podcast platforms such as Blueberry, CastBox, Deezer, Player FM, wherever you listen to your other spooky podcast, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. Would you like to be a voiceover on a future episode? Maybe you haven't heard your town, state, country, wherever you're from on Paranormal Prowlers. I'm all about recommendations, you guys. Please feel free to message me via my Paranormal Prowlers podcast Facebook page, or you can email me at paraprowl at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much, everybody, and we will see you next week.